to the Bulwark Coast of Hollywood. Uh, I am Sonny Bunch, culture editor at the Bulwark. I'm very pleased to be joined again by Frank Pelota. Uh, Frank is a media reporter for CNN. He was previously an entertainment reporter at Business Insider, as well as a writer for CNN Entertainment's Marquee Blog, and he's uh, he's been a guest on this show before, so we're glad to have him back. Uh, thanks for making the time. Really appreciate it. I feel like I'm coming up on like the SNL like five timers club soon. Is there like a jacket or something I get? I can. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna put together. I, I don't know if I can afford a jacket, but maybe like a t-shirt. I'll take, a, I'll, take a I'll take a, a mug. I'll take a mug. I'll take a mug. Okay. Uh, so let's let's big the big uh, entertainment business news this week was Netflix releasing its uh, its its quarterly report. We've got we've got sub numbers. We've got a data shift. What is going on with Netflix? What did they What did they tell everybody? So this week, Netflix reported their earnings on Tuesday. And in the earnings report, they said that they got 4.4 million subscribers. Now, the revenue, net income, that's really not that important to Wall Street. What is important is, did the subscriber count go up? And did it go up past our expectations and past the forecast of Netflix? And the good news for Netflix was, it did. 4.4 million uh, to about 213 million subscribers globally. That's great for Netflix, especially after the last two quarters where two quarters ago they missed expectations and there was this whole hubbub of like, is the vaccine starting to uh, slow this down now? That was back in like April. And then in July, they just got over their expectations, but it was a really low bar and the stock both time kind of like went a little haywire in after hours. This time they went the right direction, but let's dig a little bit deeper past that big number, which is the $213 million globally. What I have been looking at more lately, and I think you know, intrepid reporters like myself who cover Netflix have been looking at more lately, is the region-by-region region breakdown. So the two major things from the region-by-region region breakdown that I think is important for people to know about Netflix is the first is the UCAN, which stands for United States and Canada. And in the last year, they've only gained a million subscribers in the United States and Canada. It's pretty much stagnated. Now, they went up 70,000 subscribers in that region from losing 400,000 subscribers uh, the last quarter. Uh, and then if you go a little bit down, you'll see the APAC region, which is the Asian Pacific region. That was half, 2.2 million subscribers of Netflix's overall total. So I look at this and I say to myself, is this bad? Is this kind of not great for Netflix that they have penetrated the US market so deeply at this point that they've kind of hit a saturation point? And this kind of asks the question is this is why they're kind of going into gaming and getting away and not getting away from, but uh, diversifying their portfolio a little bit with different things other than films, TV, reality shows, comedy specials, things of that nature. And this is going to be a major question is that can Netflix uh, not? find new subscribers in the United States and Canada, because I don't know if there are really more. They have, to be fair, 74 million subscribers in the United States and Canada, which is, you know, I mean, Paramount Plus would would run over somebody to get that type of uh, subscriber base. Uh, so that's the issue for Netflix is that globally they're still growing, but they're not growing as fast as they have been. I mean, this is a much different quarter than some of the quarters we've seen in the past where they've gotten you know, 10 million subscribers or there was a quarter that just started the pandemic where they got the pandemic surge where they got 16 million more subscribers. This is 4.4 and that's not bad. It definitely wasn't a bad quarter. It wasn't a bad earnings report, but I wouldn't say it was phenomenal either. And that's the question we're gonna have to ask is if there's really no more places to grow, I mean, eventually you run out of room, 
Where does that leave Netflix that constantly needs to get bigger to pay for the type of content they're putting out there? Well, I mean, this this is the big question because, you know, I don't think I, I I always like to remind people that, you know, despite what their profit, you know, claims are and everything else, they, this is still a company that is accumulating massive amounts of debt and and like essentially burning through money to create uh, a new series every week that gets dumped on one day and forgotten about two weeks later outside of Squid Games, which we can talk about in a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the uh, you know, this the, I I. I am. I, I look at. I look at Netflix, and I think this is a company that cr- generates more in revenue than all of the Hollywood studios put together uh, at the box office, and all of the, uh, frankly, all of the cable networks put together, uh, just about. Um, and yet, it's still not enough. That doesn't seem sustainable in any way. Yeah, I mean, people. The, I was talking to someone about this, and the thing that I try to explain to them is that everyone has the wrong idea about Netflix which is they compare Netflix to Disney. They compare Netflix to my parent company, Warner Media. They compare it to NBC, CBS, so on and so forth. Netflix isn't trying to be a network, in my opinion. They're trying to be television. They're trying to be the whole medium of it. They don't, this is why I always thought the theaters versus Netflix conflict is kind of almost, I hate to say it, a media creation or an analyst Wall Street creation. I don't think Netflix is trying to replace theaters. I think they're trying to replace cable TV and to a certain extent, linear TV. I think that's gonna be incredibly hard because cable TV has things like live news and live sports and same thing with linear and Netflix has gone out of their way to say they don't wanna go into either of that. And plus they're both, and plus linear and cable is boosted by advertising. And you know, they're losing, you know, cable, obviously much has been written about people cutting the cord and not as many cable subscribers as there are and people not watching television as much. But this is the problem is that if you want to be television, if you want to be that big of a thing, that's going to take a long, long, long time before it's incredibly po- like profitable. You're playing a very long game. I mean, I, I listen to, you know, uh, analysts say they need to get to like 500 million subscribers globally. That's double what they have now. Yeah. I, like, where is that coming from? And that's the question that Netflix is asking themselves is like, where are we going to find these new subscribers? How are we going to bring them in? But, you know, this is not just a problem for Netflix per se. It's a problem for everyone now because everyone's kind of getting into streaming. But if you look at things like Warner Media and Disney, they're they're diversified. They have different revenue streams. Like Disney, I think at a certain point, obviously their focal point is Disney Plus. But they also have this huge moneymaker in the parks. They have ESPN, right. which, you know, there's been reports that they thought about spinning off ESPN. They might down the line, but I, I you know, that it's still bringing in money. It's still, it's still ESPN. They have the, oh my God, they have the cash cow of merchandising, which Netflix would kill to have. These are things that a company kind of like Disney has diversified and allows themselves that, yeah, we took, a, we're taking a wash every quarter with Disney Plus, but we're building for the future while Netflix is not only building for the future, they have to build for the present. And that's really hard when your only business is streaming. Did did they talk about merch and uh, and that sort of sales at all in this in this uh, quarterly call? Because I it, it, it this is what I always hear from my merch obsessed friends. I have merch obsessed friends who are like, I can never buy any Netflix stuff, and I'm like, okay, well, first off, why do you? What are you really trying to do? You, you need that Stranger Things, mm-hmm. you know, plush plushy. What what what? What are they? Are they actually looking to get into that more, or is that just kind of a market they're not interested? Do in? you have something against Demogorgon plushies? I mean, they're very comfy. <laughs> I mean, I- Look, I if you if you can put your head on it and sleep on it, it's have, it's yeah. just a pillow. They have that big mouth; you can lean right on it. Uh, in terms of Netflix, this is a great transition because yes, Netflix is 
thinking more about this. And there's been reports that Netflix is going to create more like, you know, brick and mortar, even like stores. And I may actually, I take that back. I don't know if it's brick and mortar stores, but they're definitely creating Netflix stores where they can sell uh, merchandising. And they're also getting into events. So they'll have like a Bridgerton ball, like an event based on that, uh, you know, the Shonda Rhimes uh, House of Manor show that's very sexy. And then they're also thinking about other things like gaming. So they're trying to diversify a little bit, but, at the end of the day, what I always thought was funny is that everyone goes, well, Netflix has the lead in streaming more so than all of their competitors, which is very true. They were pretty much the Neil Armstrong of streaming. But now Netflix wants to become more what Disney has been doing for, I don't know, 80 years. Like they basically, they got their start selling Mickey Mouse plushies when Mickey Mouse was a two minute short before a film. Uh, and this is this is something they're going to have to learn, but this is they're almost kind of building the plane in midair. And, you know, that's why the subscriber count is very important, but also diversifying their their business is important as well. Let's talk a little bit about the shift in data. So mm-hmm. Netflix announced that they are no longer the 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 important thing to them is no longer the people who watch for two minutes. It's yes. now total hours consumed. What? What caused this uh, this this shift, and also how how is this going to impact our ability to kind of look back into the past and compare uh, what other Netflix shows have been like? I mean, it feels like this creates a a compare and contrast problem for us. It, it does, but I would also make the argument that right now the past is kind of prologue for them. Like, I think it's the beginning of something, and this is kind of where they really want to go. So let's let's start first and foremost. The two minute rule for people who don't know, Netflix would count a view for anyone who watched two minutes. That doesn't matter if, uh, you know, if you're watching only just two minutes of Martin Scorsese's incredibly overlong film, The Irishman, which Sonny will yell at me about. But if you watch two minutes of that movie, guess what? You watched The Irishman, according to Netflix. I've always said that this this data point was incredibly stupid uh, because the thing is, and I always use this analogy, is I could say that I am the best boyfriend ever but wouldn't you rather, wouldn't it make you feel better to have some outside sources tell you that and to get a little bit more context about it? That's always what I wanted from Netflix. What, I, what I've always told the people I, I know at Netflix is, I always said, listen, can you tell me what the completion rates are? How many million people watch 70% of this? And what I've always heard back from sources there and sources elsewhere is that the two minute uh, metric actually does correspond pretty well to a completion rate, but does give them that extra flex. It gives them that extra bump that makes it seem even larger. So I think the reason they've changed this is because they know that data point is stupid. And I, and I don't know this for a fact, but if I'm a creator who's going to Netflix, I actually, these like people have to understand about creators is that, and I don't say this in a bad way because I'm one too, but we're all narcissists. Like they want to be able to know that like, this is how many millions of people actually watched my show through on a four point. They want those numbers out there. I assume Netflix is sharing those numbers internally with them to bring in more creators, but they want they want to be the biggest thing out there. This is why I also think that theaters aren't gonna go away anytime soon because you know they want the movie premiere, they want the spotlight. Uh, so I think Netflix twofold here, they're, they're gonna change this metric to it pleases subscribers a little bit more, pleases critics like myself who have had something against the two minute thing. But I also think that the biggest problem with Netflix's content is that it kind of just, it, they're background blockbusters. And what I mean by that is they disappear into the ether. Like you kind of watch them when you're folding laundry, you're kind of watching yeah. them while you're 
sending out emails. Or even if you're not doing that, you kind of just forget. Like, remember Bird Box? Not really. Um, you know, I, I, I even said this about Squid Game. Like, Squid Game, I have a feeling six months from now, people are going to be like, hey, remember Squid Game? Man, that was, that was something. Yeah. While people are still talking about, like, you know, a Disney movie from four years ago or 20 years ago for Universal movies or whatever. And I think that that's because... People have a remembrance of, I was at the biggest opening weekend of all time. I was at when Jurassic Park opened that opening weekend and it made that many people. And I remember how much money it made that weekend. I remember how packed it was. We're watching streaming alone in our houses. We're not, it's hard to, the best way to have memory is to connect it to an event. And these movies and television shows, they, they get a lot of buzz. They get a lot of talk, Squid Game's everywhere. It's on SNL. My dad's asking me about Squid Game and he doesn't have Wi-Fi for the love of God. But... <laughs> It doesn't feel like an event because we're all not watching it at the same time. We're all not able to like, you know, I haven't watched Squid Game yet and I cover Netflix. I'm, I'll watch it maybe in a couple of weeks or maybe not at all. And I think by having a metric that says this is how many people watched in the first month and it's not a two minute metric, it's actually people watching and they're going by hours, which then you'll have to divide it by the amount of uh, episodes or how long the movie was or whatever you'll have to do. Uh, to get an actual average the way that Nielsen does most ratings. It allows you to kind of eventize these type of things. And I think eventually, I think Netflix will eventually just become a part of the Nielsen apparatus. I think that's probably their best bet because that's the way people judge things. Like everyone remembers like, oh my God, that Super Bowl. There were so many people who watched it. And it's like, I was one of them. And that's something I think they need to change in order for these pieces of content to keep engaged with people even after they're done with them. Yeah, I, I have my own I have my own thoughts on this, one of which is I think that the shift in advertising models is having a bigger effect on people's memories than we we tend to uh, we tend to credit. It used to be that something would get hyped for four months, five months, six months, and then you'd go see it and you have not just the actual experience, but also the the anticipation for it. And now it just kind of shows up. and It's like, oh, it's here. All right. Let's. Yeah. Let's and, that, and that's what makes Netflix unique is that uh, what makes Netflix unique is that it can have a hit uh, thanks to its resources, its strategy, its sheer scale without zero promotion. Literally, Squid Game went from what's that uh, literally a month ago, two or maybe two months ago, to the biggest thing in pop culture. That is viral. Viral. That is the only only Netflix can really do that. I, I, you know, because Disney, like, yeah, okay, they can have a Marvel movie open to five hundred million dollars worldwide, but at the same time, they need. The, like, I've been seeing, you know, I, I've seen Eternals tra like commercials for the last month. That movie doesn't open for another two weeks. Just imagine one day if Disney just dropped a Marvel movie some random Friday and you were, and then you knew nothing about it. You'd be like, what? what? Uh, 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 yeah. You'd be so shocked and perplexed. But, you know, that's what Netflix does. And they do it better than anybody in streaming or anybody in pop culture, really. Yeah. Yeah. Uh you mentioned Nielsen's and I'm I'm yeah. curious if the if you if you think that the shift here is in part a way to so right now we get Nielsen's numbers Nielsen's has like kind of an estimate it's not it's not perfect they don't they're not hooked into the Netflix data but they put out their own their own estimate of numbers of hours watched millions of hours watched um, and Netflix has been putting out this account-based number, like the, the the number of accounts you watch mm -hmm. for two minutes. Do you think that this move is a way to kind of undercut Nielsen's and 
I mean, essentially reduce the amount of data that's out there. Like that is that's that's what jumps out to me is that we now actually will have much less data, even if we have much more precise data. You're, you're such a pessimist, Sonny. You're such a pessimist. Cynical. cynical. I'm a cynical. You're a cynical man. Um, I'd actually go the opposite direction and say I think this is Netflix preparing to become more Nielsen-like and maybe eventually even become a client, uh, because I think that you could be totally right here in that I think what they could be doing is hey, we don't need on Nissan, we'll just do it ourselves. But you're still gonna have critics who go, no one looked at this, this is always gonna be according to Netflix. It means more if it's according to an outside source. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think, uh, like they're gonna try it out, they're gonna keep trotting out to see what works. But I just think eventually they're just gonna become a client just like everyone else does. Because at the end of the day, even if they have exactly the same metric as as Nielsen, it's their metric. It's their numbers. If I, It goes back to that analogy. If I tell you I'm the best, it's me telling you it. Talk to someone who actually has maybe no skin in the game, who has who is objective, and see what they say. And if they also say that I'm the best, you're going to feel a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, let's, uh, let's stay on Netflix for just a little bit longer. Uh, Dave Chappelle Mm -hmm. is in the news. There's a new Dave Chappelle special out, The Closer. Uh, folks, some folks, a, a very vocal minority of folks in Netflix are unhappy about this. There was a walkout with dozens, uh, of folks, uh, at their, at their headquarters. Um, what is going on there and how, how, how has Netflix managed to step in this? You don't, you don't often hear a lot of like, People are mad at Netflix stories, yeah. uh, and this is this is a very rare one. Yeah, John Coblin at the New York Times had my favorite headline uh, when this controversy first started, which was uh, the Chappelle controversy takes off the glow of Netflix. Like it had this glow around it. It was this tech company that didn't have the same, you know, issues that YouTube or Facebook or all this other stuff had. But at the same time, it was a Hollywood company that also wasn't dealing with the type of controversies that we've seen Disney or Warner Media have in the past. Uh, I think this is a real big growing pain for Netflix. I think this is their biggest crisis. I think this is their, but do I think it's going to radically change anything? Not necessarily in terms of their strategy. I actually wrote a story about this at CNNBusiness.com about, and the headline was, uh, this is this is Netflix's mess. Like it's a mess of their own making. And I was talking about the Squid Game uh, that how that just came out of nowhere. And that strategy, what makes Netflix unique with Squid Game is also what got them in trouble with Chappelle. It magnified this. Like that's, it, it, it went everywhere. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, what, what Netflix really stepped in here is their strategy is we are going to have a ton of diverse content across the board globally and we're going to let artists be artists and that's how we're going to attract all these stars here basically there's always been this running joke in hollywood that's like no notes netflix like you basically like if martin scorsese wants to make a five hour long movie about the mafia guess what at most that movie's gonna be four hours and 50 minutes long like they're not gonna really screw with it too much uh i think what happened here is that strategy is not going to change i think that's inherently what netflix is that's why I think Ted Sarandos, who's the co-CEO, uh, content chief of Netflix, has been like very much defending Chappelle. I think what happened here where they really stepped in it was this is a, and, and Sarandos said as much, it was a messaging problem. They just came out and they sounded like a YouTube or a Facebook being like, this, our content doesn't have real world harm. 
that that is up for argument. I mean, the people who are very much critical of the Chappelle uh, special say that it does, and you know, I for people who are listening, I'm I'm a white male and I'm straight, and I, I don't understand like I don't understand as well as the the plight of you know trans people, and I'm not going to try to say that they're wrong or right because I don't know, and I want to learn more about that as well. But what I think here from a business point of view, which is what I cover. Uh, this is what Netflix is. And there is no advertisers on Netflix. You got to remember that as well. So, you know, I use the example. So there's no one to boycott. So I, no I, use, I use the example in my story of Roseanne. If, if people who will remember Roseanne, Roseanne had the biggest show on television or one of the biggest shows on television back in about 2018. She got, that show got canceled. She didn't even get pulled. They canceled the show. ABC canceled the show because of uh, her, her racist tweet rant that she went on. And, you know, Bob Iger in his book said, you know, I immediately made that decision because we want to be this type of company. And that's true. Disney is different. They have to have an image. But also ABC has advertisers and advertisers can boycott the show very easily. And then before you know it, you're screwed. If subscribers aren't going to leave Netflix, then it's not going to be a problem for Netflix. They're going to stick to their strategy. Uh, and you're never going to be able to really know if people left in the next quarter, if 10 million people left, you're not going to know if those 10 million were offended by Chappelle. So the point, I, I, I guess what I'm trying to make here is that if advertisers, there is none, so there's no one to boycott there. And if subscribers aren't going to leave in droves, then Netflix isn't going to change at least their strategy. What I do think this changes in terms of Netflix is I do think they've always been very good about diversity. They've been very, very good about it, which this kind of felt like a betrayal for many people, including their employees because they felt very, very focused on uh, you know, diversity efforts. They had the fund earlier this year, the Creative uh, Diversity Fund, $100 million. They put their money where their mouth is to organizations in order to get more diversity into Hollywood. Uh, Ted Sarandos told CNBC right after the announcement that they were gonna have an inclusion lens. Who are we, inclu uh, who are we excluding? Um, from our business, from our content. And I think you could see in the same way they've had controversies about, you know, uh, 13 reasons why when it came to suicide, they, they, they made some changes in how they depict suicide on their, on their platform. At the end of the day, if Netflix wants to be television, it, the analogy I've always been using, it's, it's like an Aladdin where, you know, if you want to be the most powerful genie in the entire universe, you got to live in the lamp. This is living in the lamp. You're going to have things that offend people, that is going to happen. But what Netflix has to learn is how to better respond to it and how to better react to it and how better to change themselves without changing inherently who they are, which is let artists be artists on a massive worldwide scale of content. They're not, they're not gonna learn. I, I I'm uh, I am I am skeptical uh, about uh, any organization's ability to kind of balance those two things. I, I just think that uh, if you are going to be television, as you put it, television has HBO and ABC Family. Mm -hmm. You know, te television has uh, Fox News and it has MSNBC. And like, if you are, if you, I, I don't, I don't see any way to. I think it would be, I think it would be very difficult to kind of balance that out. My, my own two cents on this is they just should have said nothing. Yeah. Just let it. Just like this is always, this is always generally my response to online controversy, and this is very much an online controversy. Is if you ignore it, it will go away once the next. Well, one pops let me up. let me push back a little bit on that because I don't think as much as it's an online. This is the the, the controversy was coming in from inside the house. 
Like their employees were upset about this. And the thing that I think is important is not to discredit anyone's anger. I think people have a right to be angry. That is the, you know, that's what makes us, you know, people. People have a right to be however. And I, I wouldn't even make the argument that people were offended. I think people, you know, in the trans community want to not have harm come upon them. And content can sometimes cause real world harm. I think, though, what's interesting is if you look at Ted Sarandos's apology, he doesn't necessarily apologize for the special or say the special is going to get removed or say the strategy is going to change at all. He apologized for not leading with humanity, as he said, in the messaging, in the communication, both yeah. internally and externally. And I agree with that. I think Netflix shot their foot off here because they and this is and they should have been better prepared. They were caught flat footed. This this is the this is. Dave Chappelle had the same exact controversy for his other comedy special, Sticks and Stones. This had been building up for a long time. Netflix could have came out and said, listen, we are, as a company, we have many trans employees. We do not necessarily agree with Mr. Chappelle's opinions or comments in the special, but we, uh, but we believe in his right to say it and we believe in giving him a platform to provide a thought-provoking and what we think is interesting special. And what we would suggest you do is watch it and make up your own mind and then literally say nothing after that. Have a town hall with your employees. If it leaks, it leaks. But, you know, I think leading with humanity here is the best way to deal with online discourse, best way to deal with anger, both internally and externally. And I think that's where they screwed up here. And I would think that, and I think Ted admitted as much. Yep. Uh, let's let's shift gears slightly from streaming to theatrical and streaming. Uh, Halloween Kills kind of surprised audience, uh, surprised everyone, I think, with their uh, their opening weekend numbers over there. We have fifty million dollars opening weekend for Halloween Kills, which is also streaming on the Peacock. Which I am, I, 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 I someone showed me the the subscriber numbers. I refuse to believe that fifty four million people subscribe to Peacock. I just I do not believe it. Uh, except, except they they are watching things I'm not watching. They're watching sports. Mm -hmm. They're watching office reruns, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. Which I think also explains why Halloween Kills still did very well at the box office because that is not necessarily a service that people are buying exclusively for movies. Right. I, I think there. I looked at. I, I wrote this story for CNN Business, and my argument was the other thing that helped Halloween Kills. Because uh, I argue that this, that the streaming component was not going to hurt Halloween Kills at all. And my reasoning was, it's a horror movie. And in the same way that I could watch a YouTube clip of someone walking through a haunted house, it's much different if I go to the haunted house. And Halloween Kills is a theatrical haunted house. You were literally sitting in the dark with strangers who were screaming, laughing, crying, whatever, as you know this masked person jumps out of the corner to scare you. And that's why horror is, in my opinion, the most reliable box office brand there is. It's even more reliable than the Marvel blockbuster because at the end of the day, they're made on low budgets. I believe that Halloween Kills was made for about 25, maybe 30 million. And with the Blumhouse stuff, there's always more on the back end, so the numbers get more skewed as well. And I think at this point, Halloween Kills had shown that if you told me right now that the sequel to Halloween, which came out in 2018, the Halloween reboot, not the original from the 70s, that movie made about 75, $77 million. And this one made about $50 million. That's, I think, what it would have made if the pandemic never happened. I think it's just there's always going to be some sort of a diminishing return 
for a movie like that. It's basically kind of a carbon copy. It's just, you know, it's actually, I really enjoyed it. It's just Michael Myers driving around town, slicing up people. It's a great time for an hour and 30 minutes. It's great. Um, But what I think is really interesting here is that, you know, this, I said this earlier in the podcast, but this, this fight between streaming and theaters, I don't believe an actual fight because I think the thing is, is if you ask me right now, why do people not go to the movies? Is it because of streaming? And I would say yes, but it's what it's really because is that tickets are really expensive. Tickets are really expensive. And if there is an option to just watch this at home, people are going to take that. And, you know, we've had things like Black Widow and HBO Max has had all of you Warner Brothers stuff on and you could watch Dune today if you want to. But, you know, HBO Max is $14.99. That's, that's, you know, if you don't have HBO Max and you want to watch Dune, what's the difference between $14.99 and $20? I mean, obviously you might get a ton, you obviously get a way more stuff with HBO Max than you would with just Dune. But if you just want to watch Dune, then you can just go and watch it in a theater on a big screen. And I think Dune is supposed to be watched on a big screen. It looks beautiful on a big screen. But I think that the two sides here have to figure out, like some movies are just gonna play better in a theater and some movies are gonna just be fine on streaming or in theaters. Halloween Kills, because it was a horror movie, I think did better in theaters than most expected. And I think there are some movies like, you know, The Many Saints of Newark, which didn't do very well in theaters, but there, you can't tell 100% that that's because of HBO Max. Maybe people just did not want to watch a, you know, a Sopranos prequel. But let's say that's people are probably more inclined to just watch that at home. That I mean, The Sopranos is a TV series, so what's the difference from just watching yeah. it on TV some more? But Halloween Kills, Dune, you know, I think Spider-Man: No Way From Home, Shang-Chi. I mean, the, like a lot of these have been exclusive to theaters. A lot of them have been duels. But I think that we've seen that. If a movie plays well on a big screen, it's going to play on a big screen well. And I go back to the first big movie of the year, which was Godzilla vs. Kong, which was free on HBO Max, no extra charge. It did great in theaters. Why is that? It's because King Kong and Godzilla look cooler on a big screen, and that was like the first movie back for a lot of people, and it's an easy movie to go see. It, it, it's it's going to be interesting as we go forward. I think if people are still, I think studios and streamers are still trying to figure it out as they go. Yeah. I, uh, speaking of movies that play differently in a big screen uh, with a crowd, I mean, Dune Dune is the sort of movie you want to go see, you know, on IMAX or in Dolby, right? Like, that is a big, big movie. It's a, you know, Lawrence of Arabia-sized movie. You, you want to see it uh, there. But... Uh, I, I, I am, I'm very curious to see what the numbers are going to be like, because I mean, look, you mentioned Godzilla versus Kong, but that movie and that movie did better than expectations, but it still did not gross more than a hundred million dollars domestic. I like it is, it is, it is still a soft domestic uh, box office for these Warner brothers movies that are also on HBO max. What is your sense of how Dune is going to, to do business wise? And what is... Warner Brothers looking for in terms of green lighting a sequel? Um, I think Dune is expected domestically to bring in around 30 to $35 million this weekend. So that's not a very high bar. Uh, but I think what's going to be interesting about Dune, and you talked about the sequels, that Dune is a part one. It's two hours and 35 minutes. It's just, it's a half a movie. You only get really half the story. Um, and there's a lot of great parts in Dune. It's, it's an overall, I thought, pretty solid movie. 
But the thing is, it's a part one. And you got, and that's a hard thing to sell to people. Be like, all right, you're going to spend two hours and 35 minutes for a movie that's ultimately a part one. But then you could argue Fellowship of the Ring is a part one. And that was three hours long. So we're going to see kind of how it goes. And then I think what they're looking for is not just a domestic gross, but a global gross. But I think what's also really interesting about Dune is that Dune is kind of on this fence between an adult movie, uh, which is very much kind of like a big, beautiful you know, there are stakes, people die, there are things that upset you. It's not just like, it, it's a big adult movie. But at the same time, it's also a sci-fi epic that has been around since 1965. It has influenced everything from Star Wars to multiple sci-fi stuff. So it's very much, and you know, the main character is the chosen one. He's the guy. And very much kind of super, like he's, he's got his own little powers too. So he's kind of a superhero. So it's kind of like both movies in both universes. And what's going to be interesting is, is it going to lean more towards the superhero aspect of it for audiences? And people are going to go out and be like, oh my God, that was like a cool movie. And it had all this action in it and explosions. Or are we going to see it more kind of like lean more towards the serious movie for adult side, which, you know, there's a lot of moments that are quiet in Dune and a lot of like acting and a lot of exposition and focus and all and 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 shots and scenes and all this other stuff and if it leans towards the the latter it's going to be interesting because a, a serious movies for adults have not done incredibly well lately you know the last duel last the, like oh the last yeah i think we can say i think we can say they have done objectively poor they've done pretty bad the they've done pretty bad and you look at like the last duel the last duel was the ben affleck matt damon adam driver duel movie uh jody comer was in it she's incredible uh, it's a, it's actually a really great movie. It's a great Ridley Scott movie. If you like Gladiator, you probably would like it. It has really great stuff to say about, you know, consent and rape. And, and it's actually well acted and has a lot of funny moments for a movie that is that serious. It did incredibly bad. Like, it didn't do well. Um, and you can make the argument that it wasn't marketed very well. But then adult, a serious adult movies aren't doing very well right now. Um, and they need to because the marketplace needs the ecosystem. Because what's gonna start happening is if you just have movies that are just for people under the age of 30, you're cutting out a huge swath of the population. And then what you're also gonna start potentially seeing is the movies for under 30 are gonna become, potentially might become increasingly more serious. And if they become more serious, they kind of lose the thing that made them enjoyable to the folks under 30. So like what's interesting is you have Dune and then two weeks you have Eternals, a um, two hour and 35 minute movie directed by a great director uh, that is a Marvel movie. And it, from all the looks of it, it looks very much unlike any type of Marvel movie. And it's gonna be interesting how that does because that's another movie that's like right on the line. So personally, as a movie fan, as a, as a fan of the business of movies, we kind of need both sides to do well because you're gonna either cut out a huge swath of the population and then that's not gonna be good for business or you're gonna change what makes a Marvel movie fun and special and a popcorn movie that you wanna watch 20,000 times. And that's also not good for the business. So they're gonna to have to figure out which way they're going and, and, have, and have more movies like that going forward. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, as you know, I always like to ask what uh, what I should have asked. What what should folks know about the business of entertainment right now? What's the big story that is undercover? Okay, so I think the big story that I want to talk a little bit about here is that everyone has been talking about 2021 is the year of the rebound at the movies. Like we're going to use all of these movies as test cases for if 
this, if, if theaters are going to survive and if they're going to have a place in the streaming marketplace, we got the year wrong. It's 2022. <laughs> it's 2022. 2022 has so many big movies on the docket. And I think, you know, the pandemic is obviously still ongoing, but for many, you know, we have many people who are vaccinated. We, in New York city, for example, you can't get into a movie theater unless you're vaccinated. Uh, you know, there people are kind of coming back to the movies slowly but surely. And I think that this was kind of like the soft opening of the movie theater this year. Like this was, all right, let's see where we're at. And I think we've had a lot of surprising victories like A Quiet Place and, and you know, uh, Venom was did well and Halloween Kills and even, you know, some other stuff like that. And we've had some muted response like No Time to Die. And we've had some big misses like, you know, In the Heights and things like that. Uh, but I think it's all going to matter next year. It's all going to matter because we're coming right out of the gate next year with some big heavy hitters, including Warner Brothers. The Batman is going to be in March. You know, Marvel moved a lot of their movies back a little bit. So now we're going to have more Marvel movies like Doctor Strange in the summer alongside Thor is going to be back in the summer. And if we're having these same conversations next year at this time where we were just like, yeah, you know, like Thor did okay, then I think theaters will actually really have to figure out what their future is going to be. And we're going to see potentially more things going to streaming. Uh, but I think this year was the soft launch. So I'm always of the case that the most important year in Hollywood is always the next year. And that <laughs> is uh, what's coming up. So I think... Yeah. I think don't make any big assumptions when this year ends. We're coming to the end of the year, and I don't know if I'll talk to you again before the end of the year. So this year was the soft opening, but next year we're really going to see if the, the tire hits the track. Sounds good. Uh, Frank, thanks very much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Uh, we will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. See you guys then. Mm-hmm.